This is Monocle On Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. Today, we're turning the clock back to hear about Watches and Wonders, a trade show which took place in Geneva last week. There, Monocle met a host of new brands and talked to some established players in the industry too. We'll also be celebrating 10 years of the Octo by Bulgari. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Last week, the watch industry came together in Geneva, Switzerland at the Watches and Wonders Fair. The event saw 38 brands, including the likes of Chanel, Rolex and Targ Heuer, showcase their latest timepieces. While small in scale, it was a significant moment for the industry, marking the first time it convened in over two years. Our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, was on the ground in Geneva and she joins me down the line from London. Now, Natalie, we've switched places. I'm at our office in Switzerland and you're back in the UK at Midori House. Tell me, what was Watches and Wonders like? So, Watches and Wonders, there was a real buzz about it because, like you said, it was the first time the event took place in two years in, in physical form and with... Uh, its rival, Basel World, being cancelled. It was also one of the first times that all the major brands were in Geneva together. Well, in the past, they've been divided between Geneva and Basel. In the middle of the pandemic, the watch industry has really been performing really well and uh, sales have been through the roof. 2021, sales for Swiss watches, in fact, surpassed pre-crisis level and many people are seeing watches as a better investment than the stock market given current political and economic crises, uh, especially classic watches like a Rolex Daytona, which now has three-year waiting lists. And in the secondary market, the prices have even doubled and tripled. So there was a lot of optimism to keep up the momentum and uh, to keep experimenting in, in the watch industry. I, I guess I'm also curious, you were there in person with a lot of people, I guess, involved in the watch industry, but I wanted to get your take on the event more broadly and why it's important. So I guess, what does it mean for people who aren't yeah, in, in the watch industry? I think people even outside the watch industry are now looking at watches as an investment in the same way they would invest in gold or in art. There's really big communities that have passion for the art of watchmaking and the craft of it all. And another interesting shift is that now it's a lot more about design rather than who can make the bigger watch and the technicalities around it. So it can appeal to a lot more people. I mean, I'm assuming some of those more established brands are appealing to the new customers as well. Amongst those major players, who stood out to you at Watches and Wonders? I would say that Cartier has a big momentum at the moment because there has been this shift to design and uh, they have a really rich archive of, of amazing design pieces. They've been looking back at Art Deco models from the 90s and reviving, reworking them for the modern day. And uh, we spoke to Pierre Rainero, Image Style and Heritage Director at Cartier who talked to us about this surge of interest in, in vintage styles and how important it is for the brand to, to keep looking back at its heritage, but also to experiment with new technologies. What was really interesting about Cartier, especially this year, is that they did bring back some 
classic styles like the tank or the pasha, reviving them with, with new technologies. But they also uh, showcase some really, really interesting new styles like a watch called the Mas Mysteries, which took eight years to make. And instead of the typical 150 components, it was made using 450. They currently patented the style, which is basically all transparent. And the mechanism inside the watch is a semicircle and instead of a full circle. So they are investing a lot in new innovations, new designs, and uh, also bringing back some of their classics. And there's a lot of stories and craft that goes into those watches. Let's hear from Piero Ranero now. It's not only important for Cartier, I think it's important for the entire world of watchmaking, I think, to get back here and there's nothing like the touch and try for objects because that's our mission, you know, to create objects that will be worn. And I think, of course, digital uh, is a great tool, but it's not the only way and not the, the final way to discover our creations, I think, uh, touching our uh, our creations is key and also seeing them worn you know and uh, trying them on yourself to, to really realize how they look like how we fit the body there's a, a greater interest in our own vision in terms of watchmaking and I think there's more comprehension more understanding of what Cartier is about today probably than decades ago it's probably linked to let's say the consistency <laughs> you know in, in uh, generation after generation at Cartier with which we cultivate our own uh, vision our own designs and I think it's probably more positively perceived today than it was in, uh, in the past probably also because people more and more think that it's a distinctive asset at Cartier there's um, something very interesting going on I think you know the digital era we are going through for, for now at least uh, two or three decades changed many, many different things because it made accessible the reason why, you know, behind our decisions. The contemporary world helps us a lot to be probably understood better and better. Effectively, there's more and more desirability around exceptional objects made by hand, that uh, requires a lot of time actually to be made, for which the original design is, some of them, uh, we're talking about the Tang Chinoise, for instance, the original design was made in 1922, one century ago, and for the new generation it represents, you know, prehistory in a way, <laughs> you know. So this is why it, it appears like a paradox, but it's, that's why it's only an apparent paradox and very superficial, because in fact, that new trend to fast consumption, everything accessible quickly, that notion of speed uh, is counterbalanced by the idea of everything that is uh, the opposite, meaning uh, there's a fascination among younger generations for objects that need so much time to be made, you know, and the idea of permanence in that world of impermanence is fascinating, again, for this generation. That was Pierre Ranero, Image, Style and Heritage Director at Cartier. Natalie, naturally a fine watch is meant to last a lifetime or longer, which you, you have sort of touched on earlier in our discussion. And it's a fact that means there's a market for pre-owned timepieces. Uh, and as far as I understand, it's a market that's growing. How was that represented at the fair? Well, this was the first time actually that a pre-owned business was invited to attend the Watches and Wonders Fair. And uh, the watch industry in general is finally opening up to the second-hand market. 
Watchfinder, a UK-based uh, resale business, was part of the fair as part of a partnership with uh, Panerai. So they, they had a stand and they showcased a selection of Panerai secondhand watches. The chief executive of the company, Arjen Vandeval, he uh, told us how big the opportunity is uh, for the primary and the pre-owned industries to work together. He spoke to us about his ambitions to be present at the fair and to keep coming back uh, hopefully next year with their own installation showcasing uh, a mix of different brands. It sounds very enticing. I'm sure we're going to follow Watchfinder at future Watches and Wonders events. Let's hear from Ian van der Waal now. I think it's an incredible first step that really showcases that the new and pre-owned industry are growing closer and closer together, and we are absolutely thrilled to be pioneering that. For the industry as a whole, understanding that real growth really sits in developing this collaborative opportunity is where the focus needs to be. So Richemont and Panadai being willing to embrace that is uh, yeah, it's a, a tremendous uh, big step for us, and we're all very, very excited to be a part of it. I think what we're seeing in general is a stronger interest in pre-owned, and it's not just in, in what or in hard luxury. Uh, You see it in fashion, you see it in uh, the designer handbags and beyond. So there's a a real embracing of sustainability and circular economy and really understanding that there is a second life for a lot of products that might uh, initially lay in, in the closet or in a safe or on a shelf. Watchfinder has started really as a digital platform. So understanding how to uh, not just connect with people interested in buying watches, but also us buying watches from customers. So our model is really centered on that everything we sell, we've bought. And uh, in between, we do authentication and testing uh, and servicing to bring it back to the best possible state. And so this digital um, uh, legacy is ingrained in Watchfinder already. And I think you see that much stronger in pre-owned in general. Just to end, what's next for Watchfinder for the rest of the year? What else should we expect? One of the the services that we are incredibly uh, proud of and and, uh, very excited about is our trade-in service. So... Watchfinder, traditionally, um, you could come to us, sell us your watch, or you could uh, trade it in and uh, put the money that you would unlock towards your next watch. This model, we've done a soft launch with uh, Richemont uh, in the last two years. So in most of the maisons, including Panerai and Vacheron Constantin, IWC, but also Cartier and Montblanc, you can go to a boutique and then can part exchange or you can trade in your watch and put that towards a new purchase. And we're currently in 90 boutiques worldwide. Um, and uh, we're incredibly uh, thankful and grateful for the opportunity given within the group. And that is something that we now want to further scale out and not just within Richemont. The model itself, we can also externalize further. And there's integration opportunities with retail partners or department stores or other watchmakers, other maisons, where we can offer the same trade-in opportunity where essentially they have a new opportunity to transact with their customers and we have a great opportunity to buy a new product that we can give a second life. And that's something that we will put a lot of focus and emphasis on uh, on the year to come. Next to the great ambition that we have to further internationalize and scale our presence in the market, we're active now.
That was Arjen Vandeval, CEO of Watchfinder. Now, Natalie, I want to ask what else caught your eye, especially when it came to new innovations. Were there any, I guess, fresh designs or, or technology that, that's particularly innovative that is worth looking at further? Definitely. Even though the watch industry is much more about subtle tweaks and not completely new designs season after season, this was a year of firsts, it felt. Tuck Hoyer, especially, uh, they debuted the first lab-grown diamond watch, which was a real uh, remarkable innovation because lab-grown diamonds is still something of a, of a debate in the in the watch and, and jewellery industries and not, uh, not many heritage brands are opening up to, to the idea of using lab-grown instead of mined uh, stones. And they also debuted this, a solar-powered watch called Solograph, where two minutes in the sun or even in artificial lights can give the watch uh, power for a day and you never have to change the battery. They're experimenting a lot and, and trying uh, out new technologies, working with startups as well, which is a first for the watch industry. I would also point out Gégé Le Coultre, which is also one of the few watch brands that has a female CEO. And uh, they had some interesting new designs, including the Rendezvous, a watch that features diamonds and sapphire glass. And what was interesting and quite romantic about that watch was the whole concept of it. It was hand-painted, showcasing the sky and stars. And uh, every couple of hours, you see a shooting star appear randomly through the watch. And if if you catch it, you get to make a wish. I mean, I wish I was there. That sounds amazing. Uh, now, I know, obviously, this is a, a Swiss event and there are plenty of famous Swiss watchmakers. Uh, you caught up with Zenith, who are one of the country's foremost luxury brands. Can you tell me a little bit about your discussion uh, with their team? Zenith is actually a brand that is just now coming to the forefront. Julian Turnar, the chief executive officer of the brand, joined five years ago and he spoke about everything that he's been doing to turn the brand around. And he managed that even in the middle of the pandemic with the launch of Chronomaster Sport, a sportier, more casual watch that has opened up the brand to a new audience. It has a better price point. It's unisex. And he said that the day that it launched last year, It received a tsunami of positive responses and he woke up to requests from his colleagues in China and the US asking for more stock because demand was just so high. Uh, and uh, they are following up this year with new editions of the Chronomaster Sport. His intention is to keep growing the brand. He told me that when you reach the summit, you need to keep climbing, and he hasn't even reached the summit yet. Uh, so I think there's a lot to expect from the brand and from this ambitious CEO. Excellent. Well, let's join him on a climb now uh, and hear from Julien Tona. You know, when I came on board five years ago, the brand was not performing really well and I had to fix a lot of things. Of course, we launched DeFi, which helped us to do great business and to show a much more contemporary aspect of the brand. And I had to do a a relift of the Chronomaster collection. When you visit the booth now, you can see not only the product, but all the branding, all the work that has been done on the brand equity. Because when you buy a luxury item, you, of course, buy the item itself and it has to be 
beautiful, it has to be top quality, it has to be timeless, but you also buy the brand. And that's what was missing in the past with Zenit, and now we're strong in the brand. And I mean, we speak about innovation, but at the same time, heritage is, is quite a big topic here at Watches and Wonders. When you come into your booth, you showcase the, some of the first pocket watches from the 19th century. So tell me how important is still looking back at that heritage and whether customers ask about the history of the brand and, and it's an important part of your conversation with them. It's Again, it's very important to capitalize on what has been done in the past. I was very lucky when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the El Primero because I got to meet people who made the El Primero in the 60s. One thing I'll never forget they told me is, Julian, it's great you give tribute to our work, but don't forget that we need, you need to move on. You need to build the zenith of tomorrow. You need to build today innovation that will eventually turn into tradition after tomorrow. And that's a great message, especially because they are in their 80s, sometimes the late 80s, but they are very visionary and very dynamic. And they basically confirm what we are doing today. Early 20th century with some beautiful pocket washers, mixing chronograph and complications, all the way to the El Primero in the 60s that continues today to push us to go further, you know, with the one-tenth of a second, one-hundred of a second, etc. It's really in our DNA, and I think it's always great to show where we come from, all the path to today's watch. And looking ahead to the, the next year, what are your expectations for the brand, and do you feel like you can keep up with the, with the momentum that has been built around uh, the, the launch of uh, Chronomaster Sport? Of course, you know, Jean-Claude Biver, who hired me, used to say, when you, when you reach the summit, continue climbing. So we are not yet at the summit for sure, but we will speed up the climbing. And of course, we have done such a great turnaround of the brand in five years. And I'm telling that with a lot of humility, because that's important to me as a value for us, for the brand. But I'm also saying that because we need to celebrate. And I've been congratulating the whole team because they've done a tremendous job over the last few years to bring this brand into such a success. That was Julien Tonnard, CEO of Zenith. He was speaking to Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, who was on the ground at Watches and Wonders in Geneva last week. We'll be right back straight after this. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one -on -one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. I'm now joined down the line by Monocle's executive editor, Nolan Giles. Mr. Giles, as usual, you've been jet-setting around the world, taking a look at the best in design, uh, which is currently on the pages, obviously, of our magazine, which has just hit newsstands. Let's mix it up with a brief on the whole issue, maybe a little bit on fashion, and then we can roll into watches. We start with some big interviews, which is always nice. We like to look at uh, the fashion and luxury industry at Monocle through the lens of, uh, I guess, a little bit of a B2B flavor. So there's an amazing interview. I say it's amazing, I did it. But the interviewee is amazing. It's Christina Betts. She's the CEO of this uh, incredible Brazilian luxury retail group called Iguatami. Uh, and then we kind of, we go through a series of interviews and then we kind of steer into just an epic, lush, uh, beautiful 
guide to, I guess, fashion, where we're at today, what Monocle likes. So there's uh, new retailers in Seoul. There's a fresh new pair of Birkenstocks that you need for uh, spring, Nick Manis. Uh, great brands from Germany, from Japan. So a real kind of global overview of what's interesting in men's style at the moment. And then we move into watches. Perfect. I mean, you know I will be rocking Birkenstocks uh, throughout summer and year-round, really. I'm a big socks and sandals kind of guy. But you mentioned watches there, which I guess is what this show has been all about today. Are there any picks? What's your take on the industry more broadly? Have you got a favourite timepiece? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, it's obviously a massive industry and the people that kind of report on it tend to be very precise, no pun intended, but, you know, very, very deep in their coverage in terms of watches and what goes into the watches and the components and the mechanisms and all these, you know, all of these little parts that go on to create something worth, you know, tens of thousands of pounds or hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, sometimes. I think the way that Monocle likes to cover it is for those people, you know, we, we do definitely have watch aficionados reading the magazine but we also have the general reader and people that are more interested in the luxury industry and I think a really lovely place to talk about and to visit if you're thinking about watches is Glashütte in Germany. Uh, we visited this town, well I actually visited the town uh, with photographer Robert Rieger for a story about one brand called Nomus Glashütte. So this little region, this town, which is part of Lower Saxony, is probably the most important region in the world beyond Switzerland for watchmaking. And there's a number of brands there doing all sorts of different watches. Nomus Glashutter is, is probably on the more affordable end of the spectrum. They create, you know, super sleek, very minimalist looking watches, but they also kind of pack a punch like what's under the hood is also uh, very well engineered. And uh, I got to kind of discover more about the brand when I was there. I mean, I also want to talk about, uh, or I guess getting under the hood is the perfect segue into this next piece that I want to play on the show, which you have kindly reported. Uh, essentially, Bulgari make the thinnest mechanical watch uh, in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got pulled into this story? Yeah, I mean, they don't just make the thinnest watch in the world. They currently hold the world record, but over... I believe the last eight years, they've set seven world records for having the thinnest watch. So it's a bit of a competition. It's not like they're just consistently beating themselves. They are on occasion, but there are a few other competitors in the mix. But yeah, you're right. I went to Rome to uh, check out the Octo Finissimo Ultra, which, as you said, is the world's thinnest watch. They only made 10 of these pieces, Nick. And sadly, it's a little bit out of our price range, I think. It's 400,000 euro a pop. And that is just because, you know, the engineering the skills, all the machining, the tooling, everything that needed to go into creating this watch uh, is extremely expensive uh, because what comes out is a watch that is 1.8 millimeters thin, which is the same height as a 20 euro cent coin. Super thin stuff, Nick. Amazing. Well, we know we have to pay for good design and this sounds like an outstanding piece of design, if a little bit expensive. You spoke to Fabrizio Bonamassa Stigliani, Bulgari's Watches Product Creation Executive Director. Let's hear from him now. Uh, here we are today to celebrate uh, the 10th anniversary of the Octo. It's, uh, let me say, that one of the most important watches in our history because we break a lot of records uh, thanks to the Finissimo. Eight. And today we present not just the 10th anniversary of the Octo Finis or the Octo, but even the, the, the last world record, the thinnest mechanical movement on the market. That's why we are here in Rome, because the idea was to celebrate the most iconic product in the most iconic place for the brand. Uh, Octo Finissimo is a, is a very well-known watch, 
change completely the perception uh, uh, for watch lovers and watch collectors about the brand. Uh, the thinnest could be on manual winding, the thinnest minute repeater, the thinnest automatic watch, chronograph, chronograph could be on, perpetual calendar, and now we have the thinnest mechanical watch overall, 1.80 millimeters, the thickness of the case, and the watch is named Octo Finissimo Ultra 1.8. When I see something like this, I guess the first thing that springs to mind to me is, you know, there's a real sleekness and almost a minimalist approach to design, which is kind of the opposite to some luxury watches you see, and they're very big and chunky, but this is very, I guess, subtle and understated. So what was the, the beginning of the Octo? Why did you see a gap in the market, I guess? We started to develop the Octo more or less uh, almost 10 years ago. At the Finissimo, we started with the thinnest manual winding tourbillon and the idea behind the Octo Finissimo was to have a new way, a more contemporary way to wear a Grand Complication watch with a very Italian touch, with a very Italian uh, taste. So at the end, uh, before the Octo Finissimo, the tuxedo and the formal watches were just with a round shape design, very thin bezel and white face and alligator strap. So very, very traditional. The Octo Finissimo was the first ultra thin watch with, for example, titanium uh, execution with the same uh, material for case, bracelet and dial for the first time a metal bracelet so it was a brand new way to wear an ultra thin watch that's why it's so unique and that's why a lot of people start to collect the octo finissimo take us through the kind of the success of the product and uh when you kind of knew that you had a hit on your hands we're very famous for the serpenti we are very famous for the huge piece of jewelry with a very unique stones and that's why the idea was to use this architectural shape mm. like you cannot expect for an ultra thin execution that's why it was uh, the octo finissimo break the rules in the, in the watchmaking industry it was after many many decades a brand start to imagine an evolution of an ultra thin watches and uh, we shake a bit uh, the watchmaking industry yeah. with this kind of executions, with this kind of finishing and materials, titanium, ceramic, rose gold or steel, but always uh, in a different way, not just the common finishing. One of the signatures of the Finissimo, for example, is the, the full ceramic uh, code, case, bracelet, dial and buckle with mm. the same finishing or the titanium with the bracelet, case and dial with the same finishing with the matte execution. This was the biggest uh, signature in terms of aesthetics. As an Italian uh, brand, uh, and I'm an Italian designer, for us it's very important to have aesthetic and technicity exactly at the same level. Because mm -hmm. if the watch is the product is just beautiful, is a piece of art that you don't want to use it, if it's, uh, it works in a very unique way, in a proper way, but it's not beautiful enough, uh, it's just a piece of engineering. So for us, as Italian, we don't have just one word to say design. For us, is applied art to the industry. Mm -hmm. This is our way to say design, but it's too long and we use design. But the idea is to have a beauty every moment of our life. And here we are in Rome, so you can see walking around the city, that is a different style. For sure you have the Roman Kingdom approach, for sure you have the Baroque, you have the Rinascimento, so you have many different styles, you have a very unique sense of beauty and proportions. That's why maybe even for this reason, this brand is different, completely mm. different mm. from the other. Can you maybe 
take us into the watchmaking facility in Switzerland. Explain what it's like there as an environment and, and why it's so special to you, I guess, when you're thinking about the design. It's very special because still today, certain uh, timepieces are made completely by hand. You have to imagine for this kind of product, for example, the Octo Finissimo Ultra, we spent three years to develop uh, the movement and the movement is uh, absolutely part of the watch. So we completely changed the way to imagine the case and the movement. It's just one component, but for some other hand watches, we spent six, seven, eight months just to assembling one by one watch masters. And we are talking about uh, the chiming watches, the Grand Sonnerie, Quantien Perpetuel, Tourbillon, Moon Phase is one of the most complicated watch that you can find on the market. And one watch master spent six, seven, eight months to assembling one with a thousand components made by hand. So it's the pinnacle of uh, the mechanical obsession. It's not uh, anymore a watch, it's a piece of uh, mechanical art. My greatest passion is making sketches and uh, the product for me is just an excuse to make another sketch. The watch is a, the perfect blend between uh, mechanism and art. Uh, the Octo is a small architecture. We have a very precise role when we design the Octo. So we love this kind of Italian approach in watchmaking industry. Fabrizio Bonamassa Stigliani there, Bulgari's Watches Product Creation Executive Director there. He was in conversation with Nolan Giles. And that's all for today's show. Next week, we'll be visiting the newest exhibition, Fashioning Masculinities, which is currently showing at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. But for more design stories in the meantime, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's show was produced by Charlie Filmercourt and Maylee Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening.